All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here, and you can watch or listen to us every week on RT.ie, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plenty on the menu today with the FAI addressing both Stephen Kenny's immediate future and also their decision to part with Vera Pau. We'll also be running through the big games in the League of Ireland, as well as the men's and women's FAI Cup quarterfinals. Plus, the Champions League is back, and we'll have Feyenoord v Celtic live on RT2 and the RT Player on Tuesday from 7.30pm. And to talk about all that, I'm joined by Keith Tracy and Graham Gartland. I hope you're both keeping well. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, so before we hear from the FAI CEO, Jonathan Hill, and then also later on, uh, the director of football, Mark Canham, uh, Graham, like last week, obviously, we were in the immediate aftermath of the international window in terms of the results and ultimately defeats against France and the Netherlands. So like we're eight days on from the Dutch game. So what's your own feeling around that international break? And also the, I suppose, the narrative that's built up and the amount of discussion in and around Stephen Kenny and his future? Um, like you said, it was too, it was a tough ask. I don't think they were ever going to go to France and get anything out of the game. I think that a lot lay on the, the Dutch game on the Sunday night. I thought they started really well. Um, I was at the game. I thought the intensity was brilliant from them from the start. They really pressed Holland high up the pitch. It was great to see. They went man for man all over the pitch. Um, sometimes that allowed. Sometimes that Ireland struggled then with the matchups further up the pitch where they left players one v one that pace wise mightn't have been able to handle some of the Dutch players one v one, and that's where the the goal comes from 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 um, Holland's point of view. I think Duffy follows somebody in and then there's a run on the inside and it leads to a goal or a penalty. Um, I thought then the second half, I thought once Holland changed the system and pinned us back a little bit, they probably had control of the game and Ireland's press was probably just wasn't there um, in terms of understanding when to slide and when to go and when to jump. When your wing-backs need to jump onto full-backs and centre-backs need to slide out. Um I think by the end of it and and sitting in the stadium, it was a real sort of apathy about it that was, look, this is where we're at. There was no, look, we've done well at the start, but this is where we're at now. And that initial excitement of when Stephen came in to not wanting to turn on him neither was there where it was just it was just a flatness to it. Um, I think the FA are in a tough situation where I think if they got rid of him, they would have come across as being overly harsh. And I think if they had have offered them a new deal, they would have got a bit of stick as well. So they were in that position of the damned if they do and damned if they don't. So I think the decision they make to say, look, he's going to finish out the campaign and we'll take it from there. I think it's probably the right decision. Um, Stephen is a really good man. I know him personally. Very good. Really good man. And, you, and he wants the best for Irish football. And I don't like this narrative around that you're pro-Kenny or you're not. Like, you're pro Ireland and you want Ireland to do well, no matter who the manager is. Um, whether you came from League of Ireland or came from the UK, we want Ireland to do well, so we want the manager to do well. So I don't get this division that comes about um, from it. I think we just want Ireland to do well as a, as a nation. I, I think certain things have let down. I think playing wise, we're trying to play a better brand of football, but we've just conceded too many goals and they've been similar goals. They've been goals from distance and they've been goals just after half time. So it's not something that they've corrected. We've conceded, I think we've conceded 27 goals in 26 games or something. It might, that's just off the top of my head without having it written down. That's a goal a game. And you need to be really prolific if you're going to concede a goal a game. And I don't think we are neither. So um, 
defensively we need to tighten up and I, I agree with trying to play a better round of football I get that but playing better football and defending well they're not mutually exclusive like you know there's no yeah. great reason defending you have to be black and white and make sure you keep clean sheets and I don't think we've we've ever done that through the rain so they would be the things that I think we needed to improve on but um, I think the FAI like I said to you they've they probably made the right decision just to come out and nip in the board and say, look, he's with us in the end of the campaign. And then they'll do a review and assess it from there. But it looks like they're probably going to move on. But who the candidates are coming forward, we don't know because they're, they're strapped for cash and there's not a lot of finance that can go into a new recruit, really. So they're going to have to um, come together and pick the right, make the right appointment. Yeah, and the FAI CEO, Jonathan Hill, was speaking to Tony O'Donoghue one-on-one last week, and he touched on that decision, which you had talked about in the uh, press conference before that, about Stephen Kenny is in charge until at least the end of the campaign. So let's listen to that first. Yeah, I think um, uh, we're looking to be um, consistent with the approach that we also took with the women's national team. And uh, the concept of having a measured and detailed and fair review um, of a campaign at the end of a campaign is is a sensible one um, for us to continue to take and that's um, that's a decision that's been taken um, with the board as well um, look uh, obviously you I the public Stephen the players um, are all hugely disappointed that we didn't get the results that we were hoping for um, in what were two really difficult games I think everyone accepts that um, in, in the month of September so um, We'll reflect on those as well in our September board meeting, um, but on balance, um, we felt that it was right to allow Stephen and his wider team um, to concentrate on those games um, that still have to be played in October and November, and then we'll look at everything in the round um, in November. But are Stephen and his players playing for his position in the future, for his next contract? Could good results against Greece, against Gibraltar, away to the Netherlands, and indeed the friendly against New Zealand, changed the tone of the conversation. Yeah, look, I, th- I think the, the players who, um, who have the honour of playing for um, the international team are playing for Ireland, and they want to win whatever the situation is, whatever the scenario or the context is. Um, but I think after the games in September, they will be desperately keen um, to do as well as they can do in the games against Greece at home. Um, and, you know, if nothing else to reward... Um, uh, those brilliant fans who came and made such a fantastic atmosphere at the Aviva um, against, um, actually against both France and Holland. Um, and they will be, they'll be fully focused and fully professional, as Stephen will be and his, uh, and his team, on the task in hand. And um, I think it's right for us to give, um, to give both Stephen and the players um, the stability and space to be able to do that. All right, so FAI CEO Jonathan Hill there. And Keith, just Tony asked an interesting question there, and it was in regards to whether there could be a change in narrative if results in October, so this is against Greece and Gibraltar, were to go very positively, good performance uh, coupled with a very good result. And then let's say um, if we add that into November, that you know Ireland go away to the Netherlands and were to get a really good result there. Do you think that changes the sense of... That we're coming towards an end point to the Stephen Kenny era, or do you think it's just uh, whatever happens October, November, you know that there will be uh, that you know there will be a change uh, eventually? Uh, to be honest with you, Ralph, I think there's I think there's definitely going to be a change. I think a change is needed. Um, 
what what Graham is saying is is right. Nobody really, personally, myself. I know Stephen. I, I know Keith Andrews. I know a lot of the boys. I know John O'Shea. You don't want to be overly critical of them because the underlying issue is we don't have the talent on the pitch. And the way Stephen is trying to play, possession based style, strangling teams. We haven't got the players in the middle of the pitch to do that. For me, you know, he's had uh, however many competitive games it is. You don't need me to come on here and rattle it off. We know it hasn't been good enough. So. You know, if we go and beat Greece at home, Gibraltar away, and then do well against the Dutch, does that mean Stephen Genny gets a new contract? I don't think so. I think it, this is more just financial restraints, Raph. I think if uh, if Lee Carsley or whoever it was that is being being tipped to come in, I think if he was available right now when we had the finances available to make that happen, I think we would make it happen because any manager who who was going to take a job wants to get in the hot seat straight away. And if you're if you're a manager, if you're Lee Carsley, for instance, and you're looking at Greece at home, Gibraltar away in the next two competitive games. You're thinking I could get six points out of that. I could get off on a front foot because let's be honest, I think this group is right written off now. We're not going to qualify out of this group. We might get a backdoor playoff, but that's our more that's our look, you know, our, uh, more than anything. So, I, in an ideal world, I think we should get a new manager in straight away and, and let them start having a look at the squad. You don't want their forced games to be competitive games where they need to hit the ground running. And look for me. We played really well against the Dutch, played really well against the French, but I think the French could have stood on our throat at any time. I think they, they started to toy with us towards the end. They just kept the ball. Uh, the Dutch game, yeah, they were good. But when when they, in the, the first half, we were excellent. The second half, when they when they swapped to a back forward and put uh, Weghorst up front, it completely changed the dynamics of the game. And we were very reactive on what we were trying to do. So, yeah, look, the games that we come out with credit are the games where we just grit, we run around, we try our best Holland, France, I don't think anybody's thrown uh, Stephen Kenny under the bus for them two games, we both, we all understand that they were difficult, difficult games, it's the Greece game before that that grates on everybody, especially the 10 days they had in Turkey before that the amount of money the, the camp cost to be 1-0 down after 10 minutes away from home, conceding 8 corners, just being under the cush, could have conceded a penalty as well, they look like a bunch of strangers and that's what's killing us when we play teams that are ranked in and around us and we tried to play football against them and they just, let's be honest, Greece, Greece pretty much battered us. You know, we went over there and we, we weren't anywhere near our best. I, I get that, but Greece looked really, really good. So do we go and play football against the Greeks now in the Aviva or do we try and do what we did against the Dutch, try and prolong that for a bit longer? And the one thing that, uh, again, I, I don't like to criticise Stephen Kenny, but if you're looking at the Dutch game and the French game in isolation now, as soon as we were beaten by France, the narrative started to come out that, oh, well, we always knew the Dutch game was more realistic. Right, I, I get that. I totally understand that. So why not why not leave Alan Brown on the bench for the, on the, bench for the French game? Doherty, I know, didn't play in the first game. But Benny Brown and Doherty looked really, really tired to me coming into the, the, the middle stages of the second half against the Dutch. In hindsight, looking at that, if those boys had been fresher, if they'd had more legs, could we have got that Dutch result over the line? Could we have got a draw? But Stephen is in such a bad position. He's no no credit in the bank, so to speak. So he can't make them sort of decisions. He has to put his best team out against France, knowing we're going to be leggy in a few days against the Dutch. And again, Raf, the, the it wasn't the the damage wasn't done against the Dutch and the French. It was done against the Greeks. And I said at the very start of the campaign, if we finished toward in this group, we'd be bang on par. So look, we could still get toward, but if we lose against the Greeks now next month in the Aviva. Instead of looking up, we're going to be looking over our shoulders at Gibraltar because Gibraltar will be fancying us. And even when we played, I know we beat Gibraltar 3 0, 
that Mikey Johnson goal was a lucky deflection in the free kick. And if we don't if we don't score that goal, we were looking very, very low on ideas to break them down. And as it happens, we got the goal, we scored two more, and Trainee looked really comfortable. I was in the Aviv, but it wasn't comfortable for 50, 55 minutes of that game. So even the Greek, the, the Greek game at home is not going to be easy. The Gibraltar game away is not going to be easy. But to answer the question, I do think there's going to be a change. I think just financial restraints have kicked it down the road. Yeah, now the main subject matter of the press conference last Thursday, actually, that Jonathan Hill and also the and Mark Hannon were, um, were speaking to media, it was in and around Vera Pau, and that was more based off of uh, what she had said in her initial statement after her um, her contract was not renewed, and then her interview with Tony O'Donoghue, the exclusive interview uh, two or three weeks ago now, um, where she detailed some of her misgivings with uh, with the F with the FAI. So here's FAI CEO Jonathan Hill in the press conference talking about the rationale behind not giving Vera Pau a new contract. The review we conducted was a thorough process which involved over 31 one on one in-depth interviews amongst players, team staff and wider personnel, and of course Vera Pau herself, who we spoke to twice at length. The outcome of this review was not predetermined, as has been suggested, nor was it designed in any way to be a critical review of the manager herself. It was simply about reflecting on the World Cup campaign in its entirety and establishing what is best for this team and for women's and girls football going forward, and as getting as many valuable perspectives as we could. As I said before, the recommendation we made to the board and the decision taken by the board was one based on the findings of the review and one we reflective, we believe, of a thorough, fair and balanced review process. While the detailed findings and specifics of the review are confidential, not confidential, as I'm sure you can appreciate, as the nature of the interviews was carried out under the promise of privacy, there are some high-level themes in relation to football matters in particular which emerge from the report, including some recurring themes such as training methods and the style and nature of sessions, and approaches to fitness and conditioning, much of which has been covered in depth by you guys already. It's important to stress that we are not here to criticise the manager's approach in any of these areas, and Vera was very clear, consistent and open in stating, not just to us but also to her staff and players, that she believed her approach to core areas such as these was absolutely the right one, and indeed one she'd adhered to across her entire career. And we are not doubting that conviction, nor indeed her beliefs. But we do feel it is important to recognise that in professional football, as in wider sport, there are always disagreements and at times subsequent tension around style and preparation. The manager had her views and believed in her approach. A number of the players, and indeed Mark, simply had a different position. And what we are saying then in simple terms is that we genuinely believe that in order to propel the next phase of growth of this team and women's and girls football in Ireland more broadly, we feel we need a different and fresh approach. There were indeed differences of opinion, but these are part and parcel of the game. But it was clear from discussions with Vera that she was not going to change her fundamental approach. All right, so that is FAI CEO there, uh, Jonathan Hill, speaking at the press conference last Thursday. And Graham, this is something you actually called in terms of the idea of alignment and maybe the sense that the FAI felt that Vera Pau didn't fit into the, uh, I suppose, the criteria in regards to training methods, coaching methods. She has her sort of uh, very strongly held views about how that should be done, which has had, which has led to success for herself and also um, brought Ireland to a World Cup. But the FAI have 
a vision of the way they want to see things done. And in fairness, before the uh, they announced that the contract was not being renewed, I think you were on this podcast with Anthony the day before. And in fairness, you called it. Yeah, I wasn't. It's what it's widely known in football circles that she doesn't believe in, in strength and conditioning. I think her husband is uh, an advocate of not having it as well. She said she's an expert in periodization and and how it works and stuff. But I think when you go away to a tournament and you haven't got a strength and conditioning coach, um, or you don't believe in it, it's gonna maybe flag a little bit more than maybe a week's training camp in Dublin going into a couple of games. I think that's when. The players really rely on cool downs, warm downs, tempos of sessions and all that stuff. So I think that may be flagged up over there. But I think when you work for any organisation, you we all work at different stages. You have to sort of, they dictate the terms that you work under and what, what needs to be followed. And then they hire you for your expertise and what you're good at. But they, they give you that framework to work in. And, and if she's not willing to work inside of that, then it's the FAO's prerogative to decide if she doesn't. That's tough off the back of the fact that she's qualified for a World Cup. Um, our style of play was a little bit defensive and counter-attacking, but again, they were building. Um, I think going forward, you might look to control the ball a little bit more and have a bit more control in, in games, especially against nations similar to the senior, similar to the men's side, against nations that you'd expect them to have more control against. Um, but it was always coming because, I, I, like I said, I think there was a lot of talk and noise around it. The Athletic interview just before the World Cup came out as well, and there was a lot of negative press towards that. And I think it just made the FAI just pop, hit pause on, on everything going forward, allowed the World Cup to play out. bit of controversy as well around the World Cup. She's not shy about coming out. I think I think even the Kate, the Kate McCabe stuff where she says, oh, are you talking to Kate in the game? Ah, oh, yeah, we had a conversation. I don't think she needs to say Kate was trying to get... I think you just, as a manager, you say, look... That was a conversation between the player and then Katie comes out. And again, it's just noise and controversy around. And the FBI are probably just thinking, look, it's better to cut our ties here. Um, you've taken us as far as we think you can go. If you don't want to work inside our area framework and air structures as a company, we hold the right to say whether you work here or not. I'm not saying it's the right decision. I think she's done an unbelievable job and she, de- she deserves an awful lot of credit as well. But like you said, it's the FBI's prerogative at this stage. Yeah, and also Mark Cannon, the director of football of the FBI, was also at that press conference. And he's somebody now with a lot of influence in terms of that framework and how it's adhered to. So let's listen to him first uh, as he discusses uh, Vera Powell. So this is a sort of back and forth with uh, Tony O'Donoghue during the press conference. And then we'll just uh, discuss the wider remit of the FBI. Can I ask you, what qualified you to do such a review? Have you ever done a review of a campaign like that? First of all, just nice to meet you all. I know, I know I've been in the role for 12 months, director of football, and my responsibilities are grassroots all the way through to international and everything in between. And I've met some of you, and, and some of you are new to me today, so I'm good to meet you all. So then to your specific question, in terms of my own background, which supports my first point, is that I've been, the role is grassroots international. I've been a player at all those stages been a coach at all those stages, been a coach educator at every level of the game, and also been a leader in a role like I am now in terms of all of those different stages. So understand what a high-performing environment looks like and have a clear vision of what that looks like moving forwards. I have great experience of working in my time in English FA. My last 10 years has been working at the Premier League with the biggest sports competition, football competition in the world, working with the best coaches 
across the senior and academy level, working with the best players literally in the world, um, and spent a lot of time understanding what high-performing environments looks like. So going into the review, have a good frame of reference in terms of what best practice looks like and what a high-performing environment looks like across sporting elements and environmental. So I think that's clear. And then over that period of time, particularly in my, my leadership experience, is a developed set of skills of questioning, listening, that enables me to listen with open questions and take on that information and, and analyse that in a very objective and, and neutral way, present those findings back to, back to the board for a, a really reasonable and logical and sensible discussion. I'm sure, though, before you took the job here, Mark, that you were very familiar with the, the history of the FAI and the number of reviews that have been carried out into various aspects of the running of the association. Um, wouldn't you think, therefore, that an independent review might have been a fairer way for yeah. transparency? I understand your question. I think it was an internal review, and it's normal practice for us to conduct reviews after each window that I think we've talked about before. This is an opportunity to take a, a deeper dive into that, for want of a better expression. Our first qualification for a major tournament since 2016, our first ever for the women's, women's game, and an opportunity to look at the whole campaign, the whole tournament from the first game when we played Sweden, and take those lessons learned. And it was an internal review. My role is responsible for all international teams across the men's and women's, all of the underage teams from 15s to seniors. And it was absolutely appropriate because of my responsibility for me to conduct that review. Yeah, and, and, and to add to that, Tony, I think and look, it's important for you to know that both I and the whole of the board were comfortable with Mark in his role as director of football. And given the fact that he knew um, all of the people involved in the wider process to do the internal review, as Mark said, so we were very comfortable that it was appropriate. But isn't Eileen Gleeson the director of women's football? Eileen Gleeson is the head of football for women and, and women and girls, and she reports into Mark, and Mark has overall um, responsibility for the direction of football and how we approach uh, the direction of football moving forward, so he was the right person to do the review. Okay, thank you. All right, so that was uh, Jonathan Hill's voice there uh, towards the end. But just before that, Mark Hannum, um, of course, who was kind of talking about his own his own role and how um, I suppose he oversees the the framework that's been built. So I just want to get both of your thoughts on this. But first, Graham, just in regards to the feedback generally within you know coaching circles and I suppose the role you have within coaching as well, and with the way the FAI is working, obviously. At club level, you're kind of outside of that, but at the same time, I guess there's players that you work with that do. Obviously, key coaches are pats underage as yeah. well. We see it. We're on the we're on the ground doing it. And um, the FAI are so reliant on the clubs to produce their players. It's as simple as that. And and but we need help. We need we need facilities to do that. And the clubs need facilities. And I know there's like Pats are in a good place, they've got good facilities themselves, but there's other clubs, we, we need more facilities, we need more contact arrows with the players. I think Mark's come in and he's obviously using his, um, his uh, what's the word I'm looking for, his experience with the English FA and the Premier League, but the English FA is <laughs> like the funding they get compared to us is a joke. Like, And, and again, it goes back to the history. The Irish FA is in. Why would you give money to the Irish FA if they're not going to spend the right? The, the funding needs to go to the clubs, and the clubs need to be allocated a certain amount of fund that has to be allocated towards youth development. And if it's not, then they don't get that funding. You, you, if I go and say, "I'm going to give a hundred grand to each club," it has to go to youth development. If any penny goes to that to a first team or anything like that, 
the funding gets stopped. So we're, we are reliant on it. Um, but the FA, the FAI need to do more to help that because we're the ones producing the players. You go with you go to an FAI camp for 10 days, that's it. But they're not going to learn that in 10 days that that's going to really drastically improve them. So there is on the grassroots coaches and the National Academy coaches to improve these players, but they need help. We need help to do it. And when Keith talks about what Stephen Kenny has to work with the top end, unless the players start coming through to improve that top end, we're never going to get the results at the top end of the pitch. The English FA have totally redone their youth structures again. They've changed all their coaches around. They moved everything around just to keep keep afresh and keep moving. But they're getting a lot of government funding to, to produce them players. And it's made a big impact because the, the youth games or the youth teams that England are producing now are winning tournaments all around Europe and, and competing at the world level. Yeah, and Keith, similarly, just on that from your own experience, I suppose, from the club side and then that sort of uh, relationship with the with the FAI, obviously, who look after the, the international remit. It's difficult. It's I think the most people's relationship with the FAI is a, is a little bit frayed because of the, the last people that, that had a... The big wigs, the last big wigs there. Look at we're trying to give the, the new the new boys, Mark Handham and Jonathan Hill, we're trying to give them a, a chance in the job. But some of the things they're saying, it's nonsensical. Like they're coming out and saying that Vera Powell losing her job has nothing to do with player power. But then in the next breath, he's saying he, he's done 30 one-on-one interviews with players and, and staff, and you're thinking, like I, I was a professional footballer for 12 or 13 years in England, and I've obviously played for my country. I've never been took into a room in a one-on-one and asked. Do you like the manager? Is the tactics okay? Do you like the training? People don't ask you that because you're a, you're a footballer. Your job is to turn up and have a standard that you meet every single day. Whether I like the manager or I don't like the manager, whether I agree with the training methods or I don't agree with the training methods, I have a responsibility as a professional to turn up and play well. Look, it, it stinks of player power for me. You know, they're saying it's the first ever World Cup for the women. So, you know, they're saying they want to grow the game. The game was in a great place for the women. You know, I remember back in the day when I was young, back in the 90s, the Irish team doing so well inspired me to want to go on and be a footballer. The amount of little girls, little boys that would have seen the women in the World Cup and thought, I want to be a footballer now. This is igniting a fire in me. And then you have all this stuff in the background with the FEI sort of taking the shine off it. And, oh, yeah, we did well in the World Cup, but we're still sacking the manager. And like, they they left the calibre of opposition we're up against there I don't think we disgraced ourselves over there whatsoever in fact I think we punched a little bit above our weight and I know people are probably saying oh my god we got one drawer over there it's all relative Raph that's our first ever World Cup that's a brilliant building block to be able to to build upon so for Vera Pau to lose her job I understand it in the grand scheme of things I really do but when the FEI are coming out and saying it's not player power we've made this decision for this and this this and this I'm not swallowing that. I think there's an awful lot of stuff in the background, the, the accusations uh, over in America. And if, if the FEI came out and said, listen, there's too much smoke for us to keep this manager going, I think people would largely accept that. But when they put it down to performances and they're saying, you know, we can we can kick on from here, what do they want to do next time? Do you want to want to go into the quarterfinals of the World Cup? Do you want to win the World Cup next time? That That's mental, Raft. You know, they need to put building blocks in place here. And Vera Powell, for me, in football in terms, has done really, really well. She's worked miracles with that Irish team. And now you're saying, you know, the style of play is not great. Again, it's all relative. You open up against Canada, you open up against Australia, they'll hurt you. You can get really, really, you know, be three or four nil, which really takes the shine off the World Cup. So I think Vera Powell did what she had to do over there. And we were unlucky in one or two of the games in the, the Australia game, the Canada game, very, very competitive. 
and against Nigeria we get the draw so I'm not sure what more she could have done in football in terms to get a new contract but when you when you step back from you taking the whole the whole picture I can understand why the FAI have done it but football in terms it's very very harsh and obviously the FAI's argument and what Jonathan Hill said is more so that they have a structure in terms of coaching and training methods and they sort of want everyone to be more or less aligned with it. Like, would, but that, that's would, crazy, would that, Raph. Yeah. So, sorry, Raph. The, the next interview they conduct, the next manager, are they going to sit them down and say, we, we let you manage the team, but we're going to manage you managing the team? That's crazy. I don't think any manager is going to say, I'll oh, the win there and any decisions that I make, I'll run past you first and I'll make sure you are happy with the training and use. And let's be honest, Raph, Vera Powers, although they're saying our training methods, our strength and condition, all of this stuff was a little bit lacking, that wasn't transpiring onto the pitch. We played well in that World Cup, so it's not like the methods that people don't like, it's obvious that it isn't working, because to me it wasn't obvious. You know, it, people are, are starting to spin this narrative, especially the FEI, that we got to the World Cup and we played well in spite of Vera Pell. And I think that's a horrible, horrible narrative. I think she's done really, really well with this group of girls. And she deserves nothing but praise from us. I understand the stuff in America. I, I, I can't keep getting away from that because that's what's lingering in the background here. And I think that's what's put the nail in the coffin for Vera Pell. And I understand it from the FEI moving forward. But it's a dangerous game when you're trying to get a new manager in and you're telling them that we have a framework that you need to walk within. So it's sort of tying the manager's hands behind their back before they even come in. Yeah, It's a yes. similar to the FA approach is that they want people in that don't, make too much noise and go on about the job. Gareth Southgate's a prime example, but Gareth Southgate's obviously been successful. Um, the women's national team for England as well is similar. They come in and do their jobs under their framework, and I think that's what the FAI is trying to, to copy in that. They're trying to bring people in that will go about their job in a less noisy manner, I'd say. But They want the yes-men. Yeah. But, it, women, but, yes, women, yes. But it's hard. It's hard for the FAI to have that because they don't have the financial backing behind it to, to to allow that to give these people the right structures and right support, even financially, to do it. And that's where I think you're, we're trying to copy the FA in the UK, but we're out the financial backing or we're out the big Premier League that they have. Um, and that's where I think we need to improve again the youth structures to get these players through, because otherwise you're, you're just fixing the roof where. The foundations just aren't there at the moment. Yeah, and uh, the post Vera Pau era now is starting this weekend with the Republic of Ireland playing Northern Ireland in the UEFA Nations League. So that is Saturday, 23rd at the Viva Stadium, a historic occasion. Obviously, first time the women's national team are going to be playing uh, down by Lansdowne Road. And it's going to be live on RT2 in the RT player from 12.30 kickoff at one o'clock. And then, uh, not to be forgotten, then three days later, they're away in Hungary um, for this inaugural Nations League. Now, the squad was named last week and one of the notable players to come back is Tyler Toland. Um, now, she hadn't been selected since November 2019 after a public falling out with Vera Pau. Um, in terms of the injuries, and there's plenty from an Irish point of view since the World Cup, uh, there was no Sinead Farley, although she did play at the weekend for a club, but the FAI put out a statement um, explaining why she hasn't been called into the, this squad that's been named by Eileen Gleeson and they said the WNT medical staff were informed by NJNY Gotham that midfielder Sinead Farley was suffering with back spasms and that a long haul flight to link up with the Ireland squad was not advisable. Also, in terms of the squad, or in terms of the staff, Colin Healy, the now former Cork City manager and also uh, Ireland goalkeeping great Emma Byrne have joined up with them. So they're going to be working uh, with the squad. And uh, also in other news, in terms of Irish players, Abby Larkin, 
has joined up with Glasgow City from Shamrock Rovers on deadline day. And the manager of Glasgow, Leanne Ross, said, although just 18 years of age, Abby has already played in the Champions League and represented the Republic of Ireland at the World Cup finals this summer. Achievements which highlight the calibre of player that she is. Uh, she's technically gifted, a creative player with an eye for goal. She can play attacking midfield or forward positions and will certainly add to the attacking threat posed by the team with her ability to assist and score goals. And just going back to this, Graham, just, you know, there's a, you mentioned earlier that they're going to try and be a little bit more expansive. Just how difficult is that to do um, at international level? Um, it's just changing how you play, really. Like, because you're going from being tight and being connected to trying to con- trying to get control of the game, to control the tempo of the game. Normally, the way Ireland were playing on the Vera Pell was you're controlling the opposition rather than controlling the game. You're you're trying to um spring traps for counter attacks where you're you're giving you're effectively giving up the ball and saying, look, we, we can we'd rather use have it and we try and control use trying to control the game. It changes your your mindset, but you need sort of players that are able to to open up the tempo of the game or slow it down when you need it and and get you a rhythm in the game. And, and then you obviously have to be set up well defensively, even when you're attacking, so that you're not then getting done on the counter-attack. But uh, I think it, I think it's a gradual thing. I think even similar to what Stephen Kenny tried, I think he probably went too far, too quick. And I think you need to build it and go, look, we can be expansive in these moments, but we're tight in these moments. And I think this idea that you can just go out and be expansive off, off out the gate, I think generally... When most teams try and do it, it can it can hinder them a little bit. So, um, I do think they'll play a little bit more, maybe, and they'll play with a little bit more freedom. I think they might release McCabe, maybe, and um, playing centrally, player off the front, um, or Denise O'Sullivan could play off 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 the front and be a little bit more, um, not as reliant in terms of wing back role, which Kate you playing. So, um, you're hoping that's the case, really. Yeah, and then in the women's FAI Cup across the weekend, so this was the quarterfinals, and Athlone Town, who were finalists last season, also runners-up in the league, they got past uh, league, current league leaders, P-Mount United, uh, 0-0 draw, but then won 3-2 on penalties, and then Sligo Rovers also through the semi-finals, beating Bohemians 1-0 away from home, and then the reigning double winners, Shelburne, uh, they have gone through as well, 2-1 winners over DLR Waves, and then Shamrock Rovers were 5-0 winners, at Cork City and the draw is going to be on Tuesday and before we talk about the men's FAI Cup uh, quarterfinals and there were quite a few interesting results there um, let's talk about the Premier Division because there was one big game there Derry City against Shamrock Rovers a one-all draw um, on Friday night uh, up at the Ryan McBride Brandywell Stadium and um, Keith you know looking at the the pitch didn't look great um, although it was an intriguing game at the same time but you always got a sense that set pieces were going to make a difference and for Derry initially it did Yeah um, I knew from the outside looking in a lot of my mates were asking me you know, what, what type of game is this going to be is it worth watching and I thought the pitch up in the Brandywell it's not conducive to you know fast play playing balls around the corner you need at least one touch to get the ball under control. Maybe sometimes you need two just to get it under control on the Astro. And that promotes people to pressure. Obviously, it's Rovers want to play one touch really quick in between the Lions. Very, very difficult to do that. But if you look back in, I think it was uh, back in May, um, Rovers beat Derry up there 2-0. And it was, they just played sensible football. If, if they had options in the middle to get narrow, uh, to make Derry go really, really narrow in the press. And once they got narrow, they played longer over them and, Richie Tell's goal in that first game was unbelievable, unbelievable finish. But 
Yeah, I, I think it was it was a game for doing the horrible stuff, for tracking your runners, putting bodies on the line, winning your battles, winning the second balls. And largely, I thought Derry were Derry were a better team, and you know, Rory Higgins would be disgusted that you haven't got anything out of that game. But you know, from a Rovers' point of view, I think they they one shot on target in the ninety minutes, and it's the penalty they end up getting getting the draw out of the game. So the one big thing for the league is you know we we want the race and we're thinking are Derry the ones are saying Pat's the ones they're going to pick up the mantle and give us a race the disappointing thing for us is Shamrock Rovers have had a lull in and around Europe in the league they think they won two from six in the league while they were in Europe Derry had a lull as well they went down with them Pat's sort of went the same as well so nobody really grabbed the bull by the horns and, and, and really went after Shamrock Rovers and yeah, it's not great for the league because I do think Shamrock Rovers are still going to win it at a canter. Um, they were poor in Europe. They were knocked out of the FBI Cup and I think they're going to, they've got all their eggs in the one basket. They're going to make it four in a row. But yeah, I, I just think Rovers didn't play well, but they did what champions do and they, they go and win the game. And I think the the, the Grainborg penalty, he's, look, Grainborg is very, very clever in what he's doing. He knows he's the wrong side of McElhenney. But if that's a, a, a fit and confident Grainborg like you, you see Hallands goal against West Ham. He's in a very, very similar position. Just takes one touch and go bang, back of the net. He doesn't wait on any defenders for contact. He just does his own thing. Graham Borg for me, a little bit, little bit low on confidence. Maybe didn't play great in the game. But he takes that touch and you see him looking over his shoulder saying, where's McElhenney? Where is McElhenney? Soon as he gets any sort of contact, he wants a penalty. He doesn't want to take the strike on. So for me, there was a little insight into Graham Borg's confidence at the minute. It's a little bit low, which is... Staggering considering his stats are actually quite good at the minute. He's he scored a decent amount of goals, decent amount of assists. But yeah, the Rovers just doing what champions what champions should do and not playing well, but not getting beaten. That's what Stephen Bradley would have said in the dressing room, lads. We can afford to get B here and mathematically we can still recover. But if we don't get B here, you know, we we one foot uh, one hand on the trophy. So they've a very big game against St. Pat's. I think it's the second last game of the season. Let's hope it's still in the mixer when we when we get to that ref. Yeah, and uh, Rory Higgins wasn't too happy with the penalty when he was speaking afterwards, Graham. And when you look at it from Shane McElhenney's point of view, obviously red card and also the the penalty being given away. What could he have done better in that position in terms of uh, you know being positionally uh, aligned in regard to where Graham Burke was going to be? He was, to be honest, they were probably poor originally because he wasn't back round. As soon as Gaffney picks the ball up, I think that when I'm looking at the goal and as soon as Liam Burke checks inside. I think the left side of centre back and the left back, uh, McJanet and Doherty deepen to a little bit too much, and then what happens is McLenny's gone in and pressed on that side, and he can't get back round on Bork. And once he can't get back round, I think he needs to put enough pressure on Bork without contact, if that makes sense. Like where he just uses his body. I think the fact he wraps his arm on around him gives Bork that opportunity to go well and gonna go down. I think you can put pressure on somebody without actually putting, you can just use your body and lean on him and maybe make Bork finish with his right foot rather than his left foot and give your goalie a chance to stay, your goalkeeper a chance to stay in the game. Um, like I said, I thought it wasn't, I agree with Keith, it wasn't a great game. I think Derry were better in the first half, Rovers were better in the second half and Derry actually scored against the run of play. Um, and then I think they have a chance where Adam O'Reilly, where he could kill the game to make it 2-0 and he misses it. And I think as soon as he misses that, and this is coming from maybe a defensive point of view, I think they just shut up shop. Like, we're got, we're, we'll, we'll take the 1-0. And I thought that they were a little bit too open in the last 10 minutes of the game. I think either you're clinical or you're cynical. And I think 
in the last 10 minutes, I think they make as many fouls at Shamrock Rovers half as they can. I think you disrupt the game. I think you slow the game down and I think you kill it. And I think at 1-0 at home, if you're going to win a league and you're 1-0 up with, with five minutes to go against your nearest rivals, if you are going to take the league off them, you need to see out the game. And I don't think they did. And and it, and that's the rootlessness that I think you need. And I think Rovers have that rootlessness that's been built up over a while where they can just go, right, let's kill the game. You either kill it by scoring the second goal or you just kill the game and, and win 1-0. And I don't think there he had it. And I don't think a lot of teams do have it. I, I agree with what Keith's saying there. Any time that Rovers have had a lull and somebody's had a chance to make ground on them, nobody's done it. They probably had the worst start from any defending champions in a long, long time to the start of the season as well. They have that dip through Europe where they, they don't get a lot of victories neither. And nobody's been able to capitalise on it. Now, that's not their fault. But the other teams really need to to gather that sort of rootless side and, and that even a vindictiveness to go, right, it's their chance here and we're going to turn the screw. And I don't think they did. And um, that would be disappointing from Rory Higgins' point of view is that you have them there for the taking. You don't take your chance, but I think they just needed to tighten up, give up the ball, let them have it. If they're going to deal with long balls and, and throw, I think the gaps are too big in the 85th minute and ultimately it cost them. It's it's a it's a red card because he's not trying to play the ball. If he makes an attempt to play the ball, he can't be sent off because it's the double jeopardy rule. So I think he just needs to let maybe Bork try and have a finish, but make it as difficult as he could and, and try and get Brian Maher to make a save then. Yeah, and obviously if Derry had uh, had kept hold of the lead that they got through McJanet, it would have been down to one point. But, you know, it's four points now, Keith, and uh, definitely feels like a win for Shamrock Rovers with a bit of time running out now between now and uh, the, the the end of the running. Yeah, that's all Rovers need to do now. You know, they, they didn't get beat up in Derry. That was the, the main aim, don't get beat. And the fact that he didn't play well, I know, you know, Stephen Bradley's not going to walk away saying, I'm delighted we didn't play well there and we didn't get beat. But sometimes as a coach, as a manager, when you're sitting on the bus and you're thinking, we haven't played well there, but you're driving away from the brand of well-known, we haven't got beat. You're thinking, right, we're a decent team. We can turn up and, you know, the second best team in the league, not play well for 85, 86 minutes and still get a draw out of the game. And that's what Rovers have done. You know, the, the back end of last season, I thought they, they, were, they weren't playing too well, but they were just winning games. They were getting over the line in games and, they're starting to get that back in them now and all champions have that, you know, you're never going to turn up and just pop people off the pitch every single game. So you have to be able to win ugly or draw ugly and not get beaten. Rovers have done that and I think Stephen Bradley, although he probably won't outwardly be saying it out loud, I think it's another little feather in the cap, a little bit like Arsenal and Everton yesterday. You don't play well, but you can't, you have to win the game, you know, and that's what champions do and fair play to Shamrock Rovers because it wasn't pretty going up there. It was going to be touch tackle, you know, just horrible, horrible day for it. And they did well. They 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 just stayed in the game and got the draw. And that's what Stephen Bradley want. And now they can just keep people at arm's length. And like I said, I think they'll just uh, canter to the finish line now. Yeah, both, they both have the same nearly running. They both the, everyone is they're playing the exact same teams. UCD, Shells, Cork, draw the Pats, Ligo, and there you have the exact same. Maybe some of them are home and some of them are away. So you know, there you have to. I think there you have to win every game. I think Derry have to win every game going and hope something comes out the other way. Do I think Derry are capable of that? Yeah, but I think, you know, draw it away is a tough game. Shells at home is a tough game and then they're at home to Pats in the last game of the season. So, you know, 
they have to nearly be perfect be, between now and the end of the season. And that's what Rovers have done with that late goal is they put all the pressure on Derry. You have to be perfect. We don't. And they have a better goal difference. So I think it was, I think going into the game, I still fancy Rovers to win the league. I think after now, I, I agree with, I think there's a green ribbon going on already at this stage, you know. Yeah, and then towards the bottom end, big win for Sligo Rovers, uh, defeating UCD 2-0. And looking at the run-in they have in the next few games, Graham, it's uh, they've Derry, they've Bowes away, and they've Pats up uh, again as well. But Cork also have a have a tough route as well between now uh, and the end of the season. Six-point gap at the moment, obviously, with Cork having a, a game in hand. Uh, what's your view on it now? Obviously, I think there would have been an expectation that Sligo would have got the, the three points against UCD that ah, yeah, much needed but um but still yeah still feel a bit they still it still seems a little bit vulnerable if Cork yeah. can get a run. I think that's what Cork could be playing on is the is the, the vulnerability in Sligo at the moment. Um I think Rory Keaton coming back from Cork is massive. I think he's he's a he's a goal threat. I think he's probably been up there as the outstanding performer, as in the striker-wise in the league. I think Gaffney's been up there as well, and Afalabi too. Uh, but I put Keaton in that bracket. I think he's been excellent. Um, and I think him coming back has been a real shot in the arm for them, and you see that even in the FAI Cup result. I think the FAI Cup getting into a semi-final will buy them as well. Um, and I think that they're fancy maybe um, reigning in Sligo here, especially with that game in hand. So, I think it's I think it's all to play for for Cork. I think they're the chasing ones, and they're gonna to have to do it. And I think Sligo would be looking over the shoulder. Um, they've lost a goalkeeper. They've obviously losing Mata as well. They've just lacked goals. But I still expected them to beat UCD. But I think Cork would be looking at them, thinking, right, we've a chance to catch them. They win that game in hand, uh, and then they can go and, and really try and rein them in. Yeah, and then the FAI Cup quarterfinals as mentioned there. So Pats two one winners at Finn Harps after coming from behind, and then Galway United trashing Dundalk 4-0, and great first half performance for John Caulfield's team there, and then Bohemians winning 3-1 at Drada, and as you mentioned there, Cork City beating Wexford 2-1 with Rory Keaton scoring the winner, and a well-taken one as well. I know Dyke, Dyke Steele's uh, goal before that probably will take the headlines, because that was a cracking finish, but uh, the the technique from from Keating was actually very good uh, for, that, for that winner against Wexford, but um, you know, looking at this, Keith, I mean, look like Bowes and uh, Pats are probably going to be the the two favourites, obviously as the Premier Division clubs. But um, how like how do you look at it now? As uh, you know, the draw is going to be Tuesday in terms of when we find out who's playing who in the semi finals. But uh, how how are you looking at it at the moment? Yeah, I would be very similar to you, Raf. I think obviously Bowes and Pats will be licking their lips, thinking minimum we get a trip to the Aviva here. Whether or not they can win the FA Cup will be uh, probably go down to the draw, but. Yeah, look, I, I think when when it came through to me on Friday night that Finn Harps had gone 1-0 up, I, I did think to myself, there's going to be an upset here along the way somewhere in this FAI Cup. When Finn Harps went 1-0 up, I thought it'll be Pats. And on paper, you know, people were saying to me, you know, Finn Harps could be Pats. I said, they could, but if you're a Pats fan or a Pats player and you're asked, who do you want? You take Finn Harps. I know they're away to Finn Harps, but you take Finn Harps, you're thinking, lovely, we'll take them. And yeah, they've done enough to get it over the line. And look, I'm sure Pats... Galway, Galway were absolutely excellent against Dundalk. You know, John Caulfield, I'm sure, had all of his Galway players ready to run through brick walls and Dundalk just never really turned up. Stephen O'Donnell making three changes in the first half just seemed a bit chaotic. And 
Yeah, bows. I, I remember speaking to Pat Fenlon last week, and I was I was picking his brains about the bows and the, and the draw of the game. And he said we're not we're not looking past draw. The draw are a very very stubborn team to try and beat. So the fact that bows got past them, they'll be delighted. And yeah, Cork like Cork. Look, Rory Keaton, he's brilliant. You know, I remember picking UCD last season to stay in the league. And the reason I did that was because I thought UCD have enough defensively to try and keep teams out. And Tom Lonergan will hit the back of the net if you give him half a chance. So it's the same with Cork. They have Rory Keaton there. They have somebody who will hit the back of the net. It's just whether or not they can keep it a little bit defensively solid. But yeah, Rory Keaton's been absolutely excellent. I echo everything that Graham said. You know, he's in a struggling Cork team, but just turns up scores goals left, right and centre and he's a big, big physical presence and quite nimble as well for the big bloke. So, yeah, I, I, I do think they're looking at Sligo but Sligo with the six points, I know they, they have a game in hand but Sligo just to be looking a bit of free fall so Cork will fancy their chances of catching them. Yeah, and just on Galway, Dundalk, uh, Graham, I mean, it's a huge result for Galway, obviously, not just the, the scoreline, but, you know, first semi-final now since uh, 2008 and, you know, very far clear in, in the first division as well. They should have that wrapped up, especially with Waterford uh, losing at the weekend as well. And they can give the semi-final fo- focus. They've an experienced manager like John Caulfield. And then you look at the goals that, the first three goals that they, they scored against Dundalk and just how, you know, just putting balls into the box seemed to... Um, you know, I, I think that's probably something Stephen O'Donnell will be looking at. I mean, they they really yeah. like they, you know, they really battered Dundalk. Go, yeah, just I one think, really direct. I think it was Horley's uh, set piece delivery. His left foot is fantastic. I know he scored a couple off that. I, I think the second goal from McCarthy probably sums up because it's it, it wasn't a set piece, but I draw that uh, Dundalk are trying to play out in the left hand corner, but there's no real energy to it. I think they looked really lax in what they were doing. They were. You know, they, they went back in three times into the corner and you're like, right. And then Galway just nick it one touch and he puts it into the box. McCarthy scores a header. And you're like, the, the difference in 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 their approach is that we're going to put you under pressure and we're going to play and we're going to play in the atmosphere. I think Dundalk would probably come across a bit naive going into the game that they thought was just going to be a game where they're the, they're the Premier Division team and they're going to dictate the game and they're going to play the same way and Galway weren't having none of it and he, he, he went out a little bit old school and that he just put a lot of pressure on Dundalk and Dundalk fouled and to be 3-0 up after 30 minutes as a First Division team against the Premier Division team not just a like a, a top five Premier Division team here it's not like that they're, they're you know they took on well I know they're sorry top six I was <laughs> one out there but uh, like Dundalk have been excellent over the last ten years, and to go and do that to them, unbelievable from Galway, and um, and it's great. And like you said, they're having a fantastic year. They're going to be crowned champions, and they're into a semi final. And like anyone going to Galway now, would would fear that. Like if you if you get drawn away to Galway, you're thinking, right, we know what's coming now, and there'll be no excuses that like we we're not sure what they're going to bring. You know what they're going to bring? They're going to bring intensity. They're going to put balls into the box. They're going to press you. They're gonna they're gonna fight and scrap for everything because there's a final at stake, and sometimes semi finals and we're lucky to, to play in a good few of them. Sometimes it's not about um how how well the game is; it's about just getting through because no one really remembers the semi final. They'll remember who won it, and um, but I think Pat's coming back has been great. I, if, if ever a goal summed up Tommy Lonigan, it's probably that he just backs into the the centre back, rolls him, and then he just fires a rocket into the top corner. That you like, he probably has no right to shoot from that angle, but that's him. But like again, he showed a bit of resilience to come back. 
Um, Bowes, I think, are, are really fancying this year. I think they want to make sure they finish with some silverware. Could it be a repeat of the, the final from two years ago, Patsby Bowes, which was a great um, day, but I'm sure Cork and Galway are going to have a say in this and nobody will want to go to Galway. I think the, I think the draw, if somebody gets Galway away, they'll be thinking, right, this is going to be a tough one to not to crack, but it was a great weekend for the FAI Cup. Yeah, for sure. And uh, in the first division, Galway still 15 points clear, but now with a game in hand because Waterford lost 2-0 at home to Cove Ramblers. Bray Wanderers and Treaty United drew two all and then Athlone beat Kerry uh, 2-1. So Athlone up to, well, they were fourth anyway, but they've extended that gap over Wexford, albeit Wexford have a game in hand. And uh, just at the top, yeah, Waterford, uh, 10 points clear of Cove and who are five points clear then of Athlone. But Galway pretty much uh, on well on course now and <laughs> it's only a matter of time before they wrap up that first division title and automatic promotion. Before we go, it's the Champions League return and we've got a live game on RT2 and the RT player which is Feyenoord against Celtic um, for those of a certain vintage they'll probably remember they, they were the European Cup finalists in uh, in 1970 I'm not of that vintage but uh, it's in the history books anyway um, but that live game Obviously, Liam Scales, uh, you know, hasn't hasn't yet to be capped for for Ireland. Has been called into the squad a few times, but he uh, has been getting an opportunity at the moment. Graham, the injuries that Celtic have at the moment, and I'd imagine just with and um, when we'll play a clip of James McLean very shortly. He was on the Late Late Show on Friday night, but with positions opening up on the left side in terms of wing back, there's uh, there's he's an interesting player to watch at the moment. Yeah, he played wing back a lot for Shamrock Rovers before he went away. Um, in that season, he scored a lot of great goals. Actually, he scored a header, a lay header against Longford. He scored a goal in the Presidents' Cup against Dundalk, where he flicks the ball ball over with his right foot and scores on with his left. He scored another cracker against Dundalk, where he cut inside. So he has the ability to play further up if if you needed him. I think when you play three at the back, I think that left side is important. That you might have a balance that you the left side of a tree probably could do with being left-footed. That gives you that option to play down the channel. I think you've seen that with Johnny Egan, where he, he cuts back in a lot. Um, but Scales, you had a really good season on loan at Aberdeen. They probably didn't have the best first six months, and then they, they changed the manager. And uh, Barry Robson came in and took over, and and, the, and Aberdeen really shot up the league, and he done really well. And since going back to Celtic, I think Celtic have lost Starfleet. He moved on. So there's obviously gaps to play and Rogers has thrown him in. He actually threw him into the old firm. Um, that was his first start and he done really well, performed. And I think that showed Rogers that, right, if I can trust him in this game, I can trust him in other games. And he, yeah, he's been excellent for Celtic. And again, Champions League is the acid test now. This is the highest level that you can play a club football at and firing hard away. It'd be a tough game. And, Again, this is why he's playing at this level. And I think if you I think if you have a player playing the Champions League level and doing well, I think it's only a matter of time before he probably should be getting capped for Ireland. Yeah, well, in fact, he is the only Irish player in this season's Champions League, which uh, obviously, you know, we go back 20 years and we'd have always had a, a small clutch of players, but that's... Killian uh, Sheridan was the last one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but uh, James McLean, as I mentioned, um, you know, he was on the Late Late Show, the first one for Patrick Healty on uh, Friday night, and really good interview. Lots of things uh, discussed from his personal, uh, you know, from more family personal things, and then also his experiences on the pitch. But he did discuss his Ireland future in terms of the short, medium, long term, and then also um, Stephen Kenny as well. So let's have a listen to that. Look at this campaign. 
maybe might be the end of the road for you? Um, well, in football, like when you, when you get older, unfortunately, um, you know, all good things come to an end. Um, look, there's still four games left of this, this calendar year, so uh, it won't be any time uh, before that. But, you know, there's a, long, there's a long gap in between the next campaign and I'll be another year older. So I think in a year's time, when that campaign comes around, I'll see where I'm at and uh, I'll, make a, I'll make a decision uh, based on uh, how things are at the time. Okay. Good answer. <laughs> Stephen Kenny, uh, what do we think? Is he going to be leading another campaign? Well, look, for me, like, obviously, I'm not the decision maker, so I can't really get into too much on that. But I can only, I can only speak on uh, Stephen and... He's been in the job for years now, and I see what he, what he, what the job means to him, and what he puts on uh, day in day out when we meet up. Like he's for Stephen, that's that's the, the ultimate job as manager in his country. You know, he's so passionate about it, um, and he's he's, he's so uh, determined to succeed. And but look, in in football, do you know what I mean? Um, you're, you're judged based on results, and. Uh, this campaign, look, we would all we all wish it it, it would it would go better than it has so far. But I'm just uh, I'm obviously thankful that I'm not the the, the decision maker on, on on things like that. I can only comment on on his work ethic and, and and how he is around the place, and he's been top notch. So that is James McLean there, and uh, just further on the Champions League, actually, Keith, just uh, on Wednesday, then uh, Manchester United go to Bayern Munich, and given what happened at the weekend, you'd, if you were a Manchester United supporter, you'd be a little bit worried going to. I know, I know, Bayern are still sort of in a sort of semi-transitional phase. Obviously, Harry Kane has started off quite well there up front, but um, even even if a Bayern Munich in transition. Given where Manchester United are at, it's you know it will be from a United fans' point of view that will be quite worrying. I do think United fans will be a little bit worried. Um, Brighton obviously absolutely dominated them on the weekend. They they were battered. It goes back to me. I, I don't want to keep harping on about it because I've said it before. You know when your captain of your team is Bruno Fernandez, love him as a player. I think he's excellent. Assists, goals, running from deep, all that stuff. He's excellent. That the nitty-gritty motivating people, grabbing a game by the scruff of the neck when it's starting to drift away from you. I don't. These are things you need to be able to do as a captain. I don't think he can do them things. I, look, don't get me wrong, fabulous player. I'd love to have him in the Arsenal team, in the Arsenal squad, but not as a captain. I don't. I, I think you need to have a little bit more about you, the captain, as, as a, a team like United, other than just talent. You can't just be a talented boy and then that's going to be enough. But when you, when you look at Bayern Munich, like uh, Kane, Gnabry, Sané, Kimmich, Alfonso Davis at left back. One of the, he's one of the best left backs in the world for me. So I do think that they are a team in transition, but they're nowhere near as bad as Manchester United. And when Bayern Munich are looking at what Brighton did to Manchester United at Old Trafford, you know, for United to go to Germany and play in that game, for me there can only be one winner. But this is usually when Manchester United torn up. When you start to when you start to doubt Manchester United and Eric Ten Hag, generally they'll throw a performance in. So. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be totally writing United off, but I think United fans might be looking at looking at that game through their through their hands a little bit fearful of what could happen. Yeah, United like, playing Brighton at home, they have to dominate the game. They have to take the game to Brighton. They have to. That's Manchester United. They're a bigger club than Brighton. They're not. They're Bayern are a big club as well, so they can go to Bayern and sit in and defend, and that's acceptable. They couldn't do it to Brighton. 
And that's the difference. West Ham done a great job against Brighton. They counter-attacked the life out and they let them have the ball and they batted them on the counter-attack. You know you're not going to do that to Brighton, but they could do it to Bourne because it's acceptable to go away to Bourne and play that way. So that's maybe might be the approach that keeps United in the game. But if they try and come out and play expansive or try and press Bourne further up the pitch, it's going to be an even longer night, I think. Um, I think United are all over the place as a, as a club and as a team at the moment. Uh, and when you look at Newcastle have struggled at the start of the season, Newcastle, Arsenal and Man United are in the Champions League this year. I can't see it being a good a good year for the English clubs. I think only Man City will be carrying the can again um, this season. I think Arsenal will do okay, but I, I can't see Man United and Newcastle maybe doing too much unless there'll be special nights up in St. James's Park. That would be the atmosphere will get them through it, but um, I think it's going to be a long group with I think even the Galatasaray and Copenhagen games away are going to be tough for United as well. So be interesting to see how they get on. Yeah, I think Newcastle probably have to dust off Timo Aspria or some sort of um, something from the memory bank uh, for that, uh, if they're going to get through the group they're in. But uh, one final thing I actually wanted to ask you about, Graham was uh, there's a couple of young lads, uh, young Irish players who have uh, joined clubs in Europe. So there's Danny McGrath, who's uh, left Bowles, or who's uh, from Bowles, who's going to uh, Lommel in Belgium. But the one I really wanted to ask you about was E.K. Orazi going from Shamrock Rovers now to Stad Rams because you talked a little bit about him earlier yeah. in the summer uh, in regard to the Irish and under 17s and you know there was a there was a clutch of player of five players uh, from Shamrock Rovers in that squad and obviously you know uh, EK quite well so uh, what do you make of the move because like again the French clubs are quite good at developing talent and sort of moving them moving them up the, the ladder it was, in fairness there was a few clubs in from I think Benfica had come in really early and put a big uh, put a proposal in place to him and his family and um, it probably just wasn't for them um, I know his dad Mark really well and would have tried to help him as best I could. Um, and the package, I think, in terms of his family are moving over. I think his mum is moving over to, to France as well. So they've, they've, they've put a lot of safeguards in place and made the, the deal in terms of the environment of the deal, not just the, the length of contract and the finances, but everything around it they've put in place has, has really made and made his decision to go there. He was only 16 at the Euros. He was one of the younger ones in the group and he stood out. And I think potentially a lot of the European clubs were looking at him because of that. Um, they rated him as one of the, the best prospects in Europe in in that age category. And he just needs to go and produce now. I think physically he's there. He obviously he needs to fill out, but physically in terms of his growth and, and the height he's going to be, they see, look, he's going to be a big lad. Can they fill him out and make him a bit more powerful? Yeah, I think every adult will go through that at, di- at different stages. Um, and it, I think... They're going to be patient with him, but they know that they have a really top prospect there. Um, defensively, he's always going to need work. That's just the way he is. Um, he's a right-footed left winger that can go down the line, and, and he has the pace and the ability to do it. And I think his finishing has come on. But it just shows you, like, um, there is clubs looking. I think uh, Grant going to the club, I think that's a link-up with Man City as well. So that's where that's one of the feeder clubs. So Man City were looking and interested in him, but they, they put him into a, a club in Belgium, and that's that's where that's come about. But you know, again, we touched on it earlier with the FAI, like the 16 year olds have to go off and, and get full time football at that age group for them to come through and be the best they can be at senior level. And we're still 
not able to offer that in this country. Like so, the gap from fifteen to eighteen now is the big gap because we can't get the contact there. Was that the European clubs at and key coaches at that level, and we we can probably get ten hours into them. I think the European clubs are getting twenty to maybe more, and that that's where they're pulling away now. It used to be twelve to fifteen. Now it's fifteen to eighteen. The European clubs and English clubs are just pulling away. Yeah, Graham, do you find sorry, Raph, do you do you find that you know with Pats with me with the Pats on the seventeens team, like the, the hours that we do get on the pitch, you obviously want to run through your shape, attacking formations, uh, triggers of when to run, when not to run, what to do defensively, and technique work just gets overlooked because of the time you have on the pitch and. I know when I went to Blackburn at 15, I was doing probably three or four technique sessions a day, like an hour before a training session, technique work, before the next training session, technique, technique, technique. And by, by the time I was 19 or 20, I was a really polished footballer. Like I hadn't had a, a very few games under my belt, but technique-wise, I was on a different level. These lads now, they're not really getting the technique work and they're being thrown in. They're a little bit raw. They have all, they're developing their physicality, but technique-wise, they're just a little bit raw and, People are always asking me, well, what's the best way to be brought up as a footballer to get hair on your chest and play games or to be polished in technique and then come into the come into the squad around 20 or 21? Well, which way do you see that? It's, I, I, it's a good question because it's hard because you're with Pats and I'm a Rovers and you're trying to set up that if if you lose a game, you're like, oh, you're, you're lost and you're trying to put that behind it. And like it's not about the result, but they have to learn how to win as well. And you're setting up a team to go, look, we're playing this way and we're trying to get just tactically aware of the game. But the technical side of it, again, I agree with you. I remember going to Barnsley and you do your work in the morning as a group, whether it was a possession-based drill. And then afterwards, you're going, right, you're doing individual work. So you're going to do an hour of heading, you know, technical heading or technical passing with your weaker foot and stuff. And it is hard to get it all in because you, you, you might do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we play Sunday, so I have a cool down session this evening, and then I have a technical, a defending technical session on Wednesday, an attacking session on Friday. So you're getting probably, I wouldn't even say an hour and a half, you're getting less, you're getting an hour and 15 minutes of what you can work on. So to get something individual into that, to get something technically into that on an individual basis, it is really tough. And then the, the first team manager might come in and go, well, he can't do these things. And you're like, I know, but I can't get that into them either. It's very hard as a coach to get that time into them. And that's where I think you're right. They do pull away because they're getting that, that 10 hours can be split between a technical 10 hours and a tactical 10 hours. So they're getting best of both where we're robbing Peter in terms of giving them tactical work. Cause you want to know that, look, I'm, I'm coaching them tactically as well, but technically you might be able to do what you're asking them to do tactically. And there it is, it's a, it's a battle constantly of right. I need to reassess this, and it and it does look. I think sometimes you need to maybe, and I'm a, guilty of it as well. I know it. I know we have to play well, and you and we have to perform at the weekend, but to, not to the detriment of um, your technical and your tactical stuff. Like I think tactical can wait. I don't know about you. I think the tactical stuff can wait to maybe your age groups a little bit, where you touch on it. I think it's all about the technical and and different ways of being technical at that age, like how to press prep. When you're pressing high, you can jump and you can be aggressive. When you're in your own box, you have to be passive as a, as a defender and and all that type of things and different varieties. But showing them how to do both is more important than maybe knowing when to do both. I think 
I get I, it's a good question, but it is it's a tough thing because we just don't have the contact errors. Well, yeah, let's make sure to come back to that actually because it's a kind of interesting thing. Obviously, youth development is something that if we're, we're talking as we talked about with the FAI at the start in terms of where this country goes in terms of football development in the long yeah, term. Yeah, it has like, to be, yeah. You need a question because like, everybody knows our key trace is coaching them, but and you there's a sense of it, and I'll touch on it because you go, oh, that's that's Grand Garden's team, oh, but they can't do these things, and you're like, but that's not important right now. If they can't do it, so what? Oh, but you were meant to teach them, man. Yeah, but that's not important at this level. Oh, well, they couldn't, they didn't know how to play out in the back. They weren't great at it. Oh, right. I'll come and teach them it. But it's this thing of that, oh, well, that's Keith Trace team. They should be better. And you, you carry that pressure as well as a coach that you want them to be nearly everything. And you're like, but the kids, they have to go through certain growth phases. And some of them are going to develop at different stages as well. Like, you know, like IK, IK are 14 was there and then we worked him so hard that eventually he jumps and then he pops and everybody's like oh he's so good and you're like yeah but took a while to get in there like you know his finishing wasn't great at 14 he misses chances in a final that everybody's honoring him about and then he scores the exact same chance against Scotland in the in the in the, in the shield where he just scored in the victory shield where he scores it and I'm like he has to go through them things to get to that like, you know we all did you know, and that's where I think sometimes we need to just park some of it, like, you know. Yeah, for sure. But uh, that's it for this week's podcast anyway. And uh, you remember Fire Nord against Celtic. It's on Tuesday night. And then the Ireland women's play a Stark Nations League fixture on Saturday afternoon at the Aviva Stadium. Both games live on RT2 and the RT player. Graham Gartland and Keith Tracy, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure.